Chapter Four of Agincourt, a Romance by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four The Glutton Mass. Breakfast was over, and yet between the lower edge of the sun and the gentle sweeping line of the hills above which he was rising, not more than two handbreadths of golden sky could be seen, for our ancestors were still, at that period, a matutinal people rising generally before the peep of day and hearing the bird's first song on a large smooth green at the back of the hall yet within the limits of the park by which it was surrounded with dunbury hill and the lines of the ancient invaders camp at the top rising still grey and cold before their eyes the group which we have described in the second chapter with the exception of the abbot was assembled to practise or to witness some of the sports of the day the ladies, having their heads now covered with the strange and somewhat cumbrous quaffs then worn, stood upon a stone-paved path watching the proceedings of their male companions, and with them appeared good Sir Philip Beecham, in a long-furred gown, with Hal of Hadnock, talking gaily to Catherine on his right hand. "'Well pitched, Hugh of Clatford,' cried the old knight. "'Well pitched. A toy's beyond Sir Simeon.' "'I will beat him by two, answered Richard of Woodville, "'taking the heavy iron bar which they were engaged in casting. "'Here goes!' "'And after balancing it for a moment in his hand, "'he tossed it high in the air, "'sending it several yards beyond any one "'who had yet played their part. "'Will you not try your arm, noble sir?' "'asked Sir Philip, turning to Hal of Hadnock. "'Willingly, willingly,' replied their guest. "'But Sir Henry Dacre has not yet shown his skill.' "'He will not do much,' said Catherine Beecham, in a low tone. "'Fie, Kate!' cried Isabel, who overheard her. "'That is untrue, as well as unkind.' As she spoke, Dacre took the bar, which had been brought back by one of the pages, and, without pausing to poise it carefully, as the rest had done, cast it within a foot or two of the spot which it had reached, when sent from the hand of Woodville. Halof Hadnock then advanced, looking round with a gay laugh to the ladies and saying, "'I am upon my mettle before such bright eyes. "'Here, boy, give me the bar.' The page placed it in his hand, and setting his right foot upon the mark where the others had stood, he swung himself gracefully backward and forward on one leg for a moment, and then tossed the bar in air. So light, so easy was his whole movement, that no one expected to see the iron to go half the distance it had done before, but, to the surprise of all, it flew from his hand, as if expelled from some of the military engines of the day, and, striking the ground full twenty paces farther than it had yet done, bounded up off the sword, and rolled on beyond. "'Well delivered! well delivered!' exclaimed Sir Philip Beecham, and the men and boys around clapped their bands and cried, "'Hurrah!' "'I will send it farther or break my arm,' cried Richard of Woodville." "'If you do, I will beat you by a toys,' replied Hal of Hadnock, laughing. But they all strove in vain. No one could toss the bar within several yards of the stranger's mark. "'And now for a leaping bar,' cried Hal of Hadnock. "'Oh, there stands one by the trees. Away, Woodville, place it how high you will.' "'I will beat you at that, noble sir,' said young Hugh of Clatford, who was reported the best jumper and runner in the country.' "'And should you do so, I will give you a quiver of arrows with peacock's feathers,' rejoined the gentleman. "'Now take it in turns. I will leap last.' Sir Simeon of Royden declined the sport, however, and Sir Harry Dacre stood back, 
but Clapford and others of the old knight's retainers took their stations, as well as Richard of Woodville, and the bar having been placed in the notches, each took a run and leapt, some touching it with their feet, some clearing it clean. Hal of Hadnock then gave a gay smile to his fair companions, with whom he had for the time resumed his place, and advancing at a walk as if to put the pole up higher, he quickened his pace at the distance of three or four steps, and cleared it by several inches. "'You try him higher, Hugh,' cried Richard of Woodville, laughing. "'I have done my best, good faith.' "'Where will you put it?' asked the traveller, turning to the young retainer of the house. "'Oh, at the highest notch,' answered Hugh of Clatford, lifting up the bar. "'Can you do that, sir?' "'I will see,' replied Hadnock. "'Stand back a bit.' And, taking a better start, he ran and went over with an inch to spare. Poor Hugh was less fortunate, however, for though he nearly accomplished the leap, he tipped the bar with his heel, cast it down, and, overthrowing his own balance, fell upon his face, amidst the laughter of his comrades. He rose somewhat abashed, with bloody marks of his contact with the ground, but Hal of Hadnock laid his hand kindly on his arm, saying, "'Thou art a nimble fellow on my life. I did not know there was a man in England could go so near me, as thou hast done. Here, my friend, thy sheaf of arrows is well won.' and he poured some pieces of gold into his hand. The words were more gratifying to the good yeoman than the money, and bowing low, he answered, "'I was sure you were no ordinary leaper, sir, for few can go higher than I can.' "'Oh, I am called Deersfoot,' cried Hal of Hadnock, laughing. "'Get in and wash your face, for you have done well and need not be ashamed to show it.' Some other sports succeeded, but the stranger took no further part therein, resuming his place by Catherine's side, apparently greatly smitten with her charms. The weak, vain girl, flattered by his attention, gave way to all the coquetry of her nature, made her fine eyes use their whole artillery of glances, whispered and smiled and spoke soft, and sometimes sighed, till the good old knight, Sir Philip, not the best pleased with his niece's demeanour, broke off the amusements of the morning, exclaiming, "'To the mass! To the mass, sirs! It's high time that we were on our way!' The sports then immediately ceased, and passing through the great hall, the courtyard, and the gates, the whole party arranged two and two, walked on amidst the neighbouring woods, towards the parish church. Halop had not kept his place by Catherine's side, and Sir Harry Dacre followed with Isabel. But somewhat to Richard of Woodville's annoyance, Sir Philip Beecham retained Mary Markham to himself, while his nephew and Sir Simeon of Roydon came after, neither perhaps in the best of humours. The noble party found the church crowded with the villagers, every woman having her basket with her, covered with a clean white napkin, but apparently crammed as full as it well could be, and Halef had not remembered that, as his companion had said the night before, this was one of the days appointed for those festivals which were then called glutton masses. When the service was over, old Sir Philip advanced to leave the building with his household, not approving the disgraceful scene that was about to take place. But Hal of Hadnock whispered to his companion of the road, "'Let us stay and see. I have never witnessed one of these feats of gormandizing.' "'Well, we shall save the credit of the family,' replied Richard of Woodville in a low tone, "'for the good priest looks upon my uncle as half a lollard.' "'because he will not stay in the church and eat till he bursts in honour of the Blessed Virgin.' "'Hal of Hadnock and his new friend accordingly lingered behind, "'and hardly had the old knight passed through the doors "'when a scene of confusion took place 
quite indescribable. Everyone brought forward their basket. Some who had lost their store hunted for it among the rest. Some hurried forward to present what they considered very choice viands to the priest. Many a pannier was overturned, and chickens, capons, huge lumps of meat, and leathern bottles of wine, mead, and ale rolled upon the pavement. One or two of the latter got uncorked, and the contents streamed about amongst the napkins, which several of the women were spreading forth upon the ground. Knives were brandished, thumbs and fingers were cut, one man nearly poked out the eye of his better half by giving her assistance, and was heartily cuffed for his pains, and a fat chorister slipped in consequence of putting his foot upon a fine trout dressed in jelly, and fell prostrate on his back in the midst. The people roared, the priest himself chuckled, and was a long time ere he could get his flock or his countenance in due order. A song to the Virgin was then sung by way of grace, and every one fell to with an intention of outdoing his neighbour. To Richard of Woodville and his companion were assigned the places of honour near the clergy, and the priest, looking well pleased down the long aisle, literally encumbered with the preparations for excess, whispered to the old knight's nephew with an air of triumph, "'Well, I think we shall outdo well at this time, at least.' "'Undoubtedly,' replied Richard of Woodville gravely, "'but I fear you will think my friend and me no better than heathens, "'having brought nothing with us either to eat or drink.' "'Poh, there is plenty, there is plenty,' replied the good man, "'and to spare. Eat as hard as we can. "'We shall be scarcely able to get through it, "'and it is fitting, too, that something be left for the poor. "'We will all do our best, however.' and thank you for your help. The onslaught was tremendous. One would have thought that the congregation had fasted for a month, so eagerly, so rapidly did they devour the provisions before them. And then they took to their bottles and drinking horns, and when they had assuaged their thirst, recommenced the attack upon the meat with renewed vigour. Richard of Woodville and Hal of Hadnock had soon seen enough of the glutton mass, and, at a hint from his companion, the former took an opportunity of whispering to the priest, "'We must go, I fear, lest my uncle be angry at our absence.' "'Well, well,' said the worthy clerk, "'if it must be so, we cannot help it. "'But tis a sad pity, Master Richard, "'that so good a man as the Knight of Dunbury "'should be such a discourager of pious ordinances.' "'It is indeed,' answered Woodville, in a solemn tone, "'but all men have their prejudices, "'and you know, father, he loves the church.' "'Aye, that he does, that he does,' replied the other heartily. "'He sent me two fat bucks last summer.' "'Oh, yes, he loves the church, he loves the church,' rejoined Woodville, and gliding quietly down the side-aisle, so that he might not disturb any of the congregation in their devout exercise of the jaws, he left the building accompanied by Hal of Hadnock. Both laughed as soon as they were out of the church, but the guest of Sir Philip Beecham soon fell into deep thought, and after walking forward for a little distance he observed, "'It is strange how men are inclined to make religion subservient to all their appetites. What are such things as these? What are many of our solemn customs but the self-same idolatrous rites practised by the ancient pagans, who deified their passions and their follies, and then took the simplest means of worshipping them? What can be the cause of such perversity?' "'The devil, the devil,' answered Richard of Woodville, "'he who leads every one from one wickedness to another. 
who first teaches man to infringe God's commandment in order to gratify some desire, and then, as that desire grows fat and strong upon indulgence, first persuades us that its gratification is pleasing to God, and in the end makes us worship it as a God. "'But yet these same good folks fast and mortify themselves at certain times,' said Hal of Hadnock, "'and then carouse and revel as if they had won a right to excess.' "'To make up for lost time,' said Woodville. "'But the truth is, it is like a man playing at cross and pile, "'who, when he has lost one stake, "'tries to clear off the score against him by doubling the next. "'We have all sins enough to atone for, "'and we play the penance against the indulgence, "'and the indulgence against the penance. "'Give me the man who always mortifies himself in all that is wrong, "'who fasts from anger, malice, backbiting, lying, and uncharitableness.' who denies himself at all times excess in anything, and holds a festival every day with gratitude to God for that which he, in his bounty, is pleased to give him. But, after all, it is very natural that these corruptions should take place, even in a faith like ours. Depend upon it, the purer a religion is, the more strong will be the efforts of Sathanus to pervert it, so that men may walk along his broad high road while they think they are taking the way to everlasting salvation. "'There is truth in that, good Richard,' replied his companion. "'But I fear me you have caught some of the doctrines of the Lollards of whom you were speaking.' "'Not a whit,' answered Woodville. "'I am a good Catholic Christian, but I may see the evils which men have brought into the church without thinking ill of the church itself, just as when looking at the abbey down yonder, I see that a foolish architect from France has changed two of the fine old round arches, which were built in King Stephen's time, to smart pointed windows, all bedizens, with I don't know what, without thinking the abbey anything but a fine building notwithstanding. Although Richard of Woodville would not admit that any impression had been made upon him by the preaching of the Lollards, certain it is that the teaching of Wycliffe and his disciples had led men generally to look somewhat narrowly into the superstitious practices of the day, and that the minds of many were imbued with the spirit of the doctrines, who, either from prejudice, timidity, or conviction, would not adopt the doctrines themselves. Nor was the effect transitory, for it lasted till, and prepared the way for, the Reformation. In a thoughtful mood, both the young gentlemen proceeded on their way through the wood, and on their arrival at the hall found Sir Philip Beecham and the rest of his family and guests already seated at the early dinner of those days. The old knight received their excuses in good part, laughed at Hall of Hadnock's curiosity to see a glutton mass, and insisted he should sit down and finish his meal with him. "'Had you been at Andover yesterday,' he said, "'you might have seen another strange sight, the mare sit in the stocks, and a justice on either side of him.' "'Indeed!' cried Hall of Hadnock seriously. "'That were a strange sight to see. "'Pray, on whose authority was it done? "'And what was the crime these magistrates committed?' "'Good truth, I know not,' answered Sir Philip. "'A party of wild young men, they say, did it. "'And as for the crime, it is not specified. "'But on my life it was justice, though a rash kind. "'For Master Havering, the mayor, has worked well for such a punishment, "'though belike... The hands that put him in were not the best fitted for the office. I should think not, certainly, replied Hall of Hadnock in the same grave tone and with an immovable countenance. The Richard of Woodville, who had contrived to seat himself next to Mary Markham on the other side of the board, gave him a merry glance of the eye as if he suspected more 
than he chose to say. When the meal was over, which was not speedily, Halleff had not proposed to take his departure, but Sir Philip, with all courtesy, besought him at least to stay till the afternoon meal, or supper, then usually served at four o'clock, with the hospitable intent of urging him afterwards to spend another night under his roof, and in the meantime he promised to show him his armoury, his horses, and his library, though, to say the truth, the suits of rich armour were more numerous than the books, and the horses more in number than the people who frequented the library. Hal of Hadnock, for reasons of his own, accepted the invitation, and Richard of Woodville, though his approaching departure was already announced, agreed to stay in order to bear him company when he went. I will not lead the patient reader through all the rooms of the hall, or detain him with a description of the armoury and its contents, or carry him to the stable and show him all the horses of the good old knight, Sir Philip, from the battle-horse, which had borne him through many a stricken field in former days, to the ambling palfrey of his daughter Isabel. Halef Hadnock, indeed, submitted to all this with a good grace, for he was a kind-hearted and considerate person, and little doubted that his friend Richard of Woodville was employing the precious moments to the best advantage with fair Mary Markham. To all these sights, with the discussion of sundry knotty points, regarding shields and pallets and univers, and properties of horses, and the form and extent of the manifair, were given well nigh two hours, and when Hal of Hadnock and his noble host returned to the great hall, they found it tenanted alone by Catherine Beecham and Sir Simeon of Royden. Richard and Dacre, Isabel and Mary, the lady said, were gone to walk together in the park, but she had waited, she added, with a coquettish air, thinking it but courtesy to give her uncle's honoured guest a companion, if he chose to join them. So direct an invitation was, of course, not to be refused by Hal of Hadnock, and he thanked her with highly coloured gallantry for her consideration. "'Do you go too, Sir Simeon?' inquired Sir Philip Beecham, but the courtly knight replied that he had only waited to take his leave, as he had business to transact in the neighbourhood, and must be home ere night. Before Catherine and her companion set out, however, Sir Simeon drew her aside as the relationship in which she stood towards him seemed to justify, and spoke to her for a moment eagerly. A few of his words caught the quick ear of Hal of Hadnock as he stood talking to the old knight, who took care to impress him with the knowledge that his fair niece was fully betrothed to Sir Harry Dacre, and though those words were apparently of small import, Hal of Hadnock remembered them long after. "'I will tell you all if you come,' replied Sir Simeon, to some question the lady had asked. "'But mind, I warn you, will you come?' "'I do not know,' answered Catherine, with a toss of her head. "'It is your business to wait and see.' "'Wait, I cannot,' rejoined the knight. "'See, I will.' And the lady, turning to her uncle and his companion, accompanied the latter through a long passage at the back of the hall, to the door which led to the ground where the sports of the morning had taken place. The park of Dunbury was very like that described by old Chaucer. Quote, a park enclosed with a wall, la compass round, and by a gate small, who so that he would freely might and gone into this park, walled with green stone. The soil was plain and smooth, and wonders soft, all overspread with tappets that nature had made herself, covered eke aloft with bowers green, and flurries for to cure that in their beauty 
they may long endure. End quote. The walks around were numerous and somewhat intricate, and whether fair Catherine Beecham knew or not the direction that her friends had taken, she certainly did not follow the path most likely to lead to where they really were. But as she and Hal of Hadnock walked along, she employed the time to the best advantage in carrying on the siege of his heart. He, for his part, humoured her to the full. Having a firm conviction that it would be far better, both for Sir Harry Dacre and herself, that the imperfect marriage between them should be annulled at their mutual desire, than remain a chain upon them, only increasing in weight. It must not indeed be supposed that he took any very deep interest in the matter, but as it fell in his way, he was willing enough to forward what he believed to be a noble-minded man's desire for emancipation from a very bitter sort of thraldom. And it is seldom an unpleasant or laborious task for a light-hearted man to sport with a capricious girl. Thus went he on then, with that mixture of romantic gallantry and teasing jest, which is of all things the most exciting to the mind of a coquette, with sufficient admiration to soothe her vanity, but with not sufficient devotion ever to allow her to imagine that her triumph is complete. Neither did he let her gain any advantage, for though it was evident that she clearly perceived the name he had assumed was not his own, he gave her no information, playing with her curiosity without gratifying it. "'But what makes you think,' he asked, "'that I am other than I seem? "'Why should I not be plain Hal of Hadnock, "'a poor gentleman from the Welsh marshes?' "'Oh, no, no, no,' she said, "'it is not so. "'A thousand things prove it. First, manners, appearance, dress. "'Why are you not as fine as my good cousin "'a dozen times removed, Sir Simeon of Royden, "'the pink of court gallants?' "'And yet I have heard that he is not as rich as an abbot,' replied Hal of Hadnock. "'No, in truth,' answered Catherine, "'he is as poor as a verger, and, like the curlew, carries all his fortune on his back, I believe.' "'I suspect not his own fortune only,' rejoined her companion, "'but a part of other men's.' "'But then your knightly spurs, good sir,' continued Kate, returning to the point, "'you must be Sir Hal of Hadnock at the least.' "'Now I never heard of that name amongst our chivalry, "'and I am deep-read in the rolls of knighthood.' "'Oh, I am newly dubbed,' replied the gentleman, laughing. "'But you shall know all some day, Lady Fair.' "'I shall know very soon,' answered Catherine, "'for Simeon of Roydon will tell me.' "'More, perhaps, than he knows himself,' said Hal of Hadnock. "'Oh, he knows well enough,' exclaimed Catherine Beecham. "'He has already told me that you are a man of noble birth and high estate,' and promised to speak the name, but I would rather owe it to your courtesy than his. "'Nay, what would I not do for the love of your bright eyes?' asked Hal of Hadnock, in a tone half tender, half jesting. "'Methinks the light in them, even now, looks like the morning sun reflected from a dewdrop in a violet. But why should I tell you aught? I have been warned that you are another's. Out upon such cold contracts that bind unwilling hearts together!' "'It is clear there is no great love in your heart for this Sir Harry Dacre.' "'Not too much to lie comfortably in a hazelnut,' answered Catherine. "'Then why do you not ask to have the marriage annulled?' demanded her companion. "'There never yet was a bond in which the keen eyes of the court of Rome could not find a flaw.' "'Why, it would grieve his proud heart sadly,' replied the lady. "'Yet I have often thought of it.' 
"'If he be proud, and so he is,' rejoined Halifadnock, "'he would never refuse to consent, however much it might vex him. "'Well, well, set yourself free from him, and then you shall know who I am. "'As for this fellow Royden, he knows nothing, and will but lead you wrong. "'But were I you, I would be a free woman ere a year were over, "'and then this fair hand were a prize well worth the winning "'to higher hearts than a Dacre or a Royden.' With such conversation they wandered on for some time without overtaking the party they had come out to seek. They saw them once at some great distance, indeed, through the overhanging boughs of an opposite alley just fringed with early leaves, but they did not hurry their pace, and only met them at length at the door of the hall as they were all returning. Sir Henry Dacre was then walking by Isabel's side, with his arms crossed upon his chest and his brow sad and stern. As soon as he saw Catherine and her companion, he fixed his eyes inquiringly upon her, and seemed to mark her heightened colour and somewhat excited look, then fell into thought again, and then laid his hand upon her arm, saying, "'I would speak with you for a moment, Kate.' "'It must not be long,' she replied coldly, "'for I have dipped my feet in the dew and would fain dry them.' "'It shall not be long,' answered Sir Henry Dacre, and he remained with her behind, while the rest entered slowly, Ere they had passed the door, the anxious ear of Isabel heard high tones without, and in a few minutes, as they paused for a moment in the hall, where the servants were already spreading the board for supper, Sir Henry entered with a hasty step. "'My horse to the gate,' he said, addressing one of the attendants. "'At what hour, Sir Knight?' answered the servant. "'Directly,' answered Dacre. "'The men can follow. Farewell, dear Isabel,' he continued, turning to Catherine's cousin. "'I can stay no longer. Farewell, Mary.' He grasped Richard of Woodville's hand, but said nothing, and with a low and formal bow to Hal of Hadnock turned towards the door leading to the court. Isabel Beecham followed him quietly, laid her hand upon his arm, and spoke eagerly, but in a low tone. "'I cannot, I cannot, Isabel,' he replied aloud. "'Dear girl, do not urge me. I shall forget myself. I shall go mad. Excuse me to your noble father. Farewell.' and opening the large door he issued forth and closed it behind him. Isabel Beecham turned with her eyes full of tears, but passing the rest silently, as if afraid to speak, she hurried to her own chamber, wept for a few minutes, and then sought her father. The supper that day was a grave and silent meal. There was a stern cloud on old Sir Philip Beecham's brow when he came down to the hall, and as he took his seat he asked, looking round, "'Where is Catherine?' "'I know not,' answered Mary Markham. "'But she went to her own chamber when she came in. "'Shall I seek the lady, sir?' asked one of the retainers of the house from the lower part of the table. "'No, let her be,' replied the old knight. And then he murmured, "'Perhaps she has still some shame, and if so, it is well.' To Halif Hadnock his demeanour was courteous, though so grave, that his guests could not but feel that some share in the disagreeable event which had evidently taken place— was attributed to him, and though he knew that his intention was good, yet, like many another man, he had reason to feel sorry that he had meddled in other men's affairs at all. Supper was nearly over, the light was beginning to wane in the sky, and the stranger was thinking it was time to depart, when the porter's boy came into the hall, and approaching Richard of Woodville, whispered something in his ear. The young gentleman instantly rose and went out into the court, but returned a moment after and spoke a word to Hal of Hadnock, who started up and followed him. 
In the court they found a man booted and spurred and dusty from the road, holding by the bridle a horse with one leg bent and the head bowed down as if exhausted by long exercise. The man instantly uncovered his head when he saw the gentleman appear and throwing down the bridle advanced a step while Hadnock gave him a quick sign which he seemed to comprehend. "'Your presence is required immediately, sir,' he said, without adding any name. "'Your father is ill, very ill, and I have lost some hours in seeking you. "'I heard of you, however, at Andover, then at the Abbey, "'then at the priest's house in the village, "'and ventured on here, as tis matter of life and death.' "'You did right,' said Hal of Hadnock, briefly, "'but with deep anxiety on his face. "'Ill, say you? Very ill? And I go away. Why, I left him better.' "'One of those fits again, sir,' answered the man. "'For an hour he was thought dead, but had regained his speech when I set out. "'Yet the leeches much fear—' "'I come, I come,' answered Hal of Hadnock. "'Speed on before. I will be in London ere daybreak. "'Change your horse often and lose no time. "'Buy a stout horse wherever you can find one, and have him ready for me on Murrell Green. "'Away, good fellow. Say that I am coming. "'Richard, I must go at once.' "'Well, I will with you, sir,' replied Richard of Woodville. "'You go to bid my uncle adieu. "'I will order out the horses.' "'So be it,' answered Hal of Hadnock. "'You shall be my guide, for I must not miss my way.' "'And after giving the messenger some money, "'he turned and re-entered the hall.'" End of chapter 4